Welcome to the Eyes on Retina, the podcast series by Boeinger Ingelheim. In this series, we hear from a range of retinal experts involved in the care of people living with retinal disease, as well as people living with this devastating condition. Hello, my name is Professor Peter Kaiser. I am the Cheney Family Endowed Chair in Ophthalmology Research at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine. And today, I will be hosting this episode of Eyes on Retina, Collaborations in Retinal Health. Retinal health has widespread and profound implications for many aspects of life, health, sustainable development, and the economy, which is why we need to look outwards, foster collaborations, and learn from each other. Retinal health touches all of us, whether directly or indirectly, and today we explore how different groups can work together to ensure the patient voice remains at the center of the story. The rental health community is formed of a number of different groups, including patients, carers, patient advocacy groups, clinicians, and pharmaceutical companies. But before we delve too deeply into these collaborations, I would like to pause and introduce today's guest. I am joined today by Avril Daly. Avril is the CEO of Retina International, a patient-led global umbrella organization which represents the voice of charities and foundations concerned with the promotion of retinal research and related health policy in over 43 countries. Welcome, Avril. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So in order for those listening to us to get to know us a little better, I thought I'd ask a lighthearted question about our senses. So if you could choose to have a super sense, an exaggerated version of a normal sense, what would it be and why? Well, firstly, I am a person who's living with an inherited retinal degeneration. So I suppose the obvious answer there is, you know, I'd like to have supersonic eyesight because I don't have very good eyesight. I've lived with retinitis pigmentosa since I was 23, but fortunately I have pretty good vision still and my problem is seeing in the dark. So I would love to have a super sense that would allow me to see in the dark. That would be pretty wonderful, I think. I agree with you. You know, of all our senses, I think having a super sense of smell might be very disheartening because I would smell everything. But sight, I'm a photographer, and I think the ability to zoom in from a far distance on a super small thing, something that human eyes cannot do, would be a very interesting super sense. Absolutely. So I thought I'd start by really giving our listeners what your perspective is on the current retinal health environment in 2021. Well, I was thinking, you know, what is the landscape like currently and how do people feel about it in our community from a patient and advocacy perspective? And I think the words that are most often used are exciting, hopeful, but also frustrating. So why these? So there is much excitement among the patient community. As I said, you know, we're very avidly following the advances in research and innovation all of the time. And particularly as we see therapies moving from the bench to the bedside, you know, we're getting towards the clinic more and more, and it's very exciting. And it's very hopeful for those affected, for they themselves and for their families who care for them. So that's a really good thing. But there's also a frustration because there is a feeling that maybe the focus is a little narrow on particular conditions. And in the context of inherited retinal degenerations, for example, there are over 300 different gene types, and we are looking at therapies for a small number of these. 
And the really frustrating thing is that there is a lack of access to genetic diagnosis. So that really hampers any further development of research and innovation in this space. And it also hampers the development of care pathways for patients. This is something that I think is important because we would say that inherited retinal degenerations are actionable conditions because there are steps that you can take beyond therapy if you understand what gene type you have, you know, I mean, and how your condition is likely to develop so that the care and support services can be provided and that the person is aware and is empowered around their condition. But there's also frustration for people who are living with conditions of the aging retina. And, you know, we feel that as well because there are still challenges for people not getting to their eye doctors early enough and therefore really missing out on the opportunity for an intervention that could really slow down the degeneration of their eyesight. For us, anything that involves, you know, losing sight unnecessarily is frustrating. I would say overall of all of those three words, it's really hope and hopeful is what this community is right now. Yeah, I couldn't agree more as someone who wears two hats, one as a physician seeing patients with these retinal diseases and particularly inherited retinal degenerations. I can recall back when I first started practicing, we had nothing to treat these patients. And it was a very difficult conversation that we would have when we made these diagnoses to tell a patient, I'm sorry, I can tell you what you have, but I can't tell you how we're going to treat it. The second hat that I wear is in the clinical trial area. And I think that's the area of hope that you are describing because now we're starting to see movement in terms of gene therapy studies, especially in inherent retinal degenerations, as well as other studies that are really agnostic of the genetic background, including stem cells and others. And these are all in clinical studies. So as you said, from a standpoint of my second hat, I can now offer hope to my patients. And it's a very exciting time in retinal disease. So I'm going to ask you, Avril, can you tell us a little bit about the work that Retinal International is doing to support patients living with retinal conditions? Sure. Retinal International has actually been around since 1978, and it was a voluntary organization up until 2016, where really what it was doing was bringing patient groups all over the world together to provide peer-to-peer -peer discussion and engagement that leads to, you know, exchange of ideas, but primarily to really provide information on the development of treatments, but really research and development. And you can imagine there has been such an explosion in that space, as we've already said, you know, from 1978 to 2016. And what became clear is that we needed to really engage better with our community. The research was advancing to the clinical trial stage. We're getting close to the clinic and we are at the clinic with certain conditions. And there just needed to be a little bit more consistency with respect to advocacy because we really work on policy actions. So what we do is we provide that information. We continue to do so. Of course, we've got great channels now through all of our social media. And it's really important when you're working with a global organization, these outputs are extremely important. We're also very focused on the development of real world evidence in collaboration with our member organizations. And that allows us to provide qualitative and quantitative data on the burden of disease. And that in turn supports really robust, validated advocacy campaigns that are relevant across regions. So going back to the point of making sure that everybody is, as it were, singing from the same hymn sheet, that we have the same information. And that, of course, really strengthens our work as advocates when we're all saying the same thing because we are only one community. 
We also have a Retina International Youth Council where we're bringing together our young people to address the barriers that they encounter in education, in employment and relationships. A very interesting group of future leaders making us very excited. And we also provide the Retina International Education Hub, and that's the work that we do day to day at Retina International. Well, and it's incredibly important work, really. If you think about it from the global community that we live in, we have some countries with very large and well-funded organizations, but we have other countries with very small organizations. And I find it fascinating, the idea of sharing and speaking from the same hymn book to all your organizations within it. How do you really bring everyone together to ensure that everyone hears the same information? Well, we do that through a number of outreach programs. As I said, the development of IT information technology and web-based platforms has really made it easy because what we do is when we have a research output, for example, you know, we can provide webinars to our membership and everybody gets involved. And those webinars are multi-stakeholders. So you're getting the perspective of the patient on what this means to them, the clinician, the researcher, often policymakers as well about why this is important. So you can bring people together on platforms in a pre-COVID world. That would be done a lot in, in events at a local level where members of our organizations, even the very small organizations that are voluntary led, they bring together the multi-stakeholder groupings, the clinicians, the researchers together to inform the patients and to provide a platform for exchange of ideas. And that really leads to the development of relationships where people can pick up the phone to each other and have conversations. And that's really, really important. So breaking down the barriers to access to each other when it's so important that these groups talk to each other and learn from each other is something that we feel we can do. And information technology provides us with the tools to allow us to do that more consistently and I think more effectively than we have been able to do before. So those are very interesting points. I think the statement you made at the outset that Sometimes you have patients and patient groups that are frustrated with us clinicians and the pharmaceutical companies because maybe we're not appearing to work fast enough. We're not developing something in your particular disease. As a person who works in that space, it's interesting to hear that frustration. I feel that frustration when I'm with my patients, but understand that from our standpoint, we're working truly as fast as we possibly can. Sometimes we uh, have the regulatory environment from both the U.S. and EMA telling us different things. So it's oftentimes difficult. But understand that at the end of the day, uh, we're all in this together. We all want to see the conditions we're talking about treated and hopefully even cured. And we're working towards that very feverishly from our side. And I wonder, you know, from your standpoint, how do you think we can deepen some of these collaborations between the patients, the clinicians, the advocacy groups, and the pharmaceutical companies who at the end of the day will be footing the bill for many of these clinical trials? Well, if you think about what our priority is as an organization, it really is the development of global health research policies you know, that are fit for purpose and that address unmet need. So that's a priority. And we believe that you cannot do that alone you won't be successful. And there are many examples of people trying to do it alone and they are not successful. A multi-stakeholder consensus-driven approach that brings the views of patients, scientists, healthcare professionals and industry together to examine what are the roadblocks? What are the issues here? How does each of these 
challenges, let's just say, really impact us? And what do we need in order to address those? Is there something we can do together? That's really, I think, how collaboration works, right? And when you think about it in other areas of innovation, you ask your end users, you know, you ask the people who are involved and engaged to talk to each other to say, well, what is the need? And I think that's something that is new in health and maybe can be looked at with a little bit of skepticism. But actually, you know, in our experience of really looking at the development of robust policies, this is the way forward. So it's sitting together, discussing with each other and finding what is important to each particular group. And what you'll often find is it's the same thing. So that's important. It's the discussion. It's really just about engagement and talking. At the outset, you also mentioned the idea that many patients, especially with inherited retinal degenerations, don't really know uh, the genetic makeup of their disease. And that puts them at a disadvantage if there's clinical studies in that very disease if they don't know the genetic makeup. But it's sort of a, a chicken or an egg type of question because prior to the development of the first gene therapy program, which was in Labor's congenital amaurosis, there was really very little going on to look at the genetics of inherited retinal degenerations. And now we have companies that are involved in this space, so they have a vested interest in knowing the genetic makeup. But what role do you think should governments play in this area? Because governments certainly could have started some of these genetic databases much earlier than the pharmaceutical companies. What do you think about that? You know, it's a very interesting point. And there is an old American movie, the name of which escapes me. It was about baseball. Now, I don't know a lot about baseball because I'm, you know, Irish. But anyway, I do know that one of the statements in and one of the main lines was, if you build it, they will come. Oftentimes, it's very difficult for uh, governments to actually see how this will work. So oftentimes you have to develop it first. And there are many examples across different regions, both in the United States and Europe and beyond, where you have patient organizations collaborating with clinicians in order to develop these you know, registers of patients, but also of you know, different conditions. And they have to do it themselves. And it's only then that governments say, oh, this is very interesting. This is something that we can do. Often what I hear as an advocate is, oh, you know, that's not a, a strategic priority for this government because, you know, within the context of health, we're firefighting all the time. You know, we need to do something a little bit more practical, but it's so practical. It allows understanding a disease, you know, having a natural history of a disease, having a, a, a robust register to be able to understand how these patients are going to be affected, but also to be able to provide the material for the research that needs to be ongoing, and also to be able to support the development of clinical trials. These are so necessary. And unfortunately, we hear governments talk about innovation all of the time, but you know, are they really thinking about the infrastructures that need to be put in place in order for that innovation to really come to its fruition? And I think that's a big challenge. And sometimes we have to actually do it ourselves first to allow them to engage with us and maybe take it from there. You're 100% correct. I think the fact that we now have genetic databases for many inherited retinal degenerations, there are huge prospective studies looking at patients, for instance, in dry macular degeneration, especially in Europe, 
looking at what changes over time because dry macular degeneration, as you know, we have no treatment mm -hmm. uh, and we have no known cause at this point. And so doing these large prospective studies over time are vital to our understanding of the disease. And in a movie that you described, which is actually one of my favorites, it's called Field of Dreams about the New York Yankees <laughs> playing the Chicago White Sox in a, in a cornfield in the middle of the Midwest is truly, if you build it, uh, they will come really is I think apropos of what we're talking about here because we're talking about diseases, many of which have very rare, thankfully rare prevalence. And so oftentimes, as you said, governments care about big numbers and, and they may not care so much about smaller numbers. And so organizations such as yours, as well as the underlying organizations in the different countries are so vital to being the voice for the patients. And from your perspective, how do you maybe get and speak to the clinicians and industry, be the voice for some of these rare and very rare diseases? Well, we engage um, a lot with clinicians and researchers. We have a scientific and medical advisory board that is made up of clinicians and researchers from all over the world. So members of Retina International, they appoint their leaders in their community to this advisory board. So we have a really good understanding of not only the, the overview from a global perspective of the researchers and the clinicians, but we also are starting to see a lot of networking happening now, which is really important and, and region to region and, and collaborations. And, and, and of course, that's always been the case, but we're seeing it more and it's very exciting. With industry, I think the challenge for industry um, is twofold. Certainly in certain regions, it can be challenging to ask a patient group a question because there may be regulation hurdles. Certainly it's very different, for example, in the United States, the conversation that you can have with industry as a patient or a patient representative or advocacy group is often very different to the conversation that you can have in other parts of the world. It really does depend. And that's something that we have to be very mindful of. However, we would always say, we would encourage industry and, and innovators to pick up the phone and ask a question. If we can answer the question, we can. If we can't, we can't. It's as simple as that. But I think more and more industry are reaching out to patient organisations and asking the questions, starting the conversation and really engaging. And what we do is we can provide advice. We can provide um, advice on everything from patient proofing your clinical trial form to patient proofing your new website, you know, to actually discussing what are the fundamental challenges that we're facing and do we have synergies here? So it really is about, again, coming back to, there is no great science to it. A collaboration is really about people talking to each other and listening to each other and then being able to lead the change that needs to happen. That's really what it's all about. And speaking of collaboration, when we run clinical studies, it's oftentimes difficult to find some of these patients with rare and, and very rare diseases. We have to screen many patients before we can find that one patient who qualifies for the clinical trial for us to be able to even move forward in our clinical trial development. At the Cleveland Clinic, we work very hard to recruit in our area but it's interesting as I sit here and listen to this, you know, what part do you think organizations such as yours should play in recruiting uh, and supporting the clinical trials? You mentioned some areas already, but I think recruitment is, is one of the key areas 
that's very difficult to find some of these rare patients. Yes, it's very challenging. There's absolutely no question. Um, we work very closely with our membership in relation to, first and foremost, providing education around clinical trials. You know, what are they? How do they work? The various phases of clinical trials and what to expect as a patient or a family from a clinical trial. You know, these are very important questions and discussions that need to happen. And it's important that patients are made aware you know, but also we distribute information through our various different communication channels. And but what I will tell you is certainly patients that we are engaged with, they already know what clinical trials are happening and they're asking to get on a clinical trials that may not be appropriate for them, but they're so eager to engage. It's frustrating for them, but also frustrating for the investigators because, you know, it is difficult and challenging. And there are ways of dealing with that in the context of inherited retinal degenerations, rare, multi-center uh, trials are now becoming much more the norm in this space. And, and you can, you know, if you're going to have a, a trial across many different regions, then you're more likely to get the patients for your IORDs. But, you know, it is very challenging to get patients engaged in clinical trials uh, for the aging eye. And, and that is because, you know, you have a lot of things to consider. These patients are not always engaged in patient groups. And where they are, it's usually for support services, for uh, low vision aids. So it's through the low vision clinics and through the clinicians themselves that we can often find patients um, to inform them about these trials that are taking place. For aging groups as well, they're not so much online, of course, and there still exists. And I think it's very important to mention this, you know, because we're coming out of the COVID reality. We've all learned and upskilled in how to communicate via the internet, but we're still dealing with a huge amount of digital poverty and also a huge challenge in accessibility for people to become proficient in this area. So, you know, older generations, it's still about sending out information via post that that is accessible to them and also engaging with the people in their families who will be the person who will probably influence the decision of the person who is potentially qualified for a clinical trial for the aging retina. So there are challenges that I think we need to work again closely together on and collaborate more effectively on how to recruit these patients and make sure that they get the opportunities that many of them are seeking, but they don't know how to. Well, I think you're bringing up some really interesting points that as someone who does a lot of clinical trials, we need to bring back to the pharmaceutical companies, uh, as well as the steering committees of these clinical studies, because you're right. In many of these diseases, the support groups are so involved and know so much about what's going on. It can help us in terms of getting patients into our clinical trials, informing them of upcoming clinical trials, as well as the other aspect that we may not understand is, is the caregivers for many of these patients, because many of these uh, patients are actually children. And they need to be involved also because we can't uh, enroll a patient who's a child in a clinical trial without full knowledge and support of the parent. So you really give me some food for thought about how we can use some of the patient organizations uh, during a clinical trial. But how about after? Let's talk about the point where we've finally developed uh, a possible treatment. It's maybe available in the very near future or is available now. How can your organization help get the word out 
to some of these places. And, I, and I, in particular, I'm talking about some of the places that maybe don't have the healthcare systems that, say, the UK or the US or, or other countries have. How can you get the word out that we finally have a treatment for your disease? Well, what I would say is that the challenge is not getting the word out. The patients can be very engaged, as can their clinicians be, in understanding what treatment is available or has been newly developed, newly approved um, to be available in the various different jurisdictions. The real challenge, I'm afraid, is accessibility. You know, accessing these, these new emerging therapies is a real challenge for a lot of communities not just what you would imagine in developing countries, but in European countries, Eastern Europe, in Australia, New Zealand, in countries that you wouldn't imagine, it is a challenge. There's a therapy, for example, available for patients that and has been available for three years in the United States for patients with an IORD, and it's only starting to become available to other patients. This is very frustrating to them because what we are dealing with here are our degenerative diseases. And as you well know yourself from your own experience, whether it is an aging eye condition or an IRD, it is hard to know how what the cadence of that degeneration will be in that person. You know, they could lose their sight in a very short space of time while they're waiting for access to a treatment. That's extremely frustrating for us. And so the only way we can really deal with that is to work again in collaboration with our stakeholders to really look at the challenges. One of the things that we have actually done here as a patient community, as a global patient community, is we've said, okay, we understand as patients what the burden of this disease is on us, on our families, on our community. We have a fair idea that it is not as much of a burden on the healthcare system as maybe governments think that it is. So when they are assessing either a therapy or a care pathway or a piece of research, they're saying, well, you know, that's not a huge chunk of money. You know, um, inherited retinal degenerations, age-related retinal degenerations, you know, are they costing us that much money? Do we really need to invest in them? The reality is they do and they are. They have a significant burden on the patient financially, on society, not on the healthcare systems. We were able to demonstrate that through a cost of illness study on inherited retinal degenerations that we ran in 2019 and 2020 in the Republic of Ireland, the United Kingdom, the United States and Canada. And what we were able to do was demonstrate all of this information that we knew anecdotally. We were able to say, you as a government don't understand the pressure on patients, the burden on them financially, on their mental health, the barriers and challenges of access to education and employment, all of this costs money, it needs to be addressed, but you're assessing us in a way that's not really fit for purpose. We can provide that real world evidence that we can support again our advocacy campaigns globally so that we're all using the same information, the same argument to say, actually guys, you need to, for want of a better expression, view this with a different lens. We need to be seen for what we are, we're different. And if we can try to change the system together, then we're doing something to address these issues. And that is a fundamental issue across all regions. And it's just an example of something that we can do together so that when a therapy becomes available to one group, that it becomes available to all and that future therapies are assessed more appropriately. That's really what we're focused on here. Well, another aspect of this is the patient voice in clinical trials. So obviously, 
the pharmaceutical industry has a their role in the development of these products. And certainly regulatory agencies are going to dictate some of the milestones and, and outcomes that need to be shown to get a drug or, or a therapy approved. But I think your organization can add another aspect to clinical trial design, which is the patient voice and how the patient voice should be heard when we develop these clinical trials. How do you think your company should work and patient, other patient advocacy groups should work with the pharmaceutical industry? I think that this is fundamental to everything that you've said. I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. The patient voice must become more engaged in the process of clinical trial development. And we all know that that is something that probably has been discussed, but maybe it has been a little less action on. What we say to companies that we work with and, and to principal investigators is you have to listen and then you learn and then you can lead the change. So if you have to listen to what the patient is actually saying, what is the value to them from concept to delivery? What is going to make a difference to them in their day to day lives? You can learn. And those learnings can be applied from basic research all the way through, but particularly and more coming more importantly, the whole area of patient reported outcomes of developing and setting endpoints that are appropriate, that are realistic to that particular uh, patient cohort. You know, understanding the nuance of these diseases, the way in which they manifest, the different ways in which they can and how they affect the patient, that needs to be better understood apart from just the clinician and the patient, but also by industry. It is industry that will bring these therapies through to, to the clinic. That's a very important element, you know, that they are engaged and they're listening and they're learning from the very outset. And again, there have been very good examples of where this approach has been employed and it has re resulted in the acceleration of research and development and better access for the patients and also better outcomes for the patients for the healthcare community in general. So it's it's a very important thing and it goes all the way through. And I think industry is becoming very aware of this and very open to discussions where appropriate with the patient groups to ensure that they are listening and that they can really provide the best outcomes through that knowledge that they will gain. And, you know, as I said, I've been in this space for 20 years and there's been a lot of talk about this and how to engage better and how can we do this and how can we do that? Really, it's only, I would say, in the past five years that this is being really approached in earnest and where there is a willingness to work together. Well, Avril, this discussion has been fascinating. I really would like to thank you for joining us today on the Eyes on Retina podcast. I also want to thank you and your organization for all that you do to be a voice for patients, because I think it's a voice that's vital to be heard by all the stakeholders. And I really have found our conversation to be extremely thought-provoking. But before we finish, uh, I'd like to ask if you have anything else you'd like to say to our listeners. I would like to thank our listeners for taking the time to seek out this podcast and listen. We're all at the stage right now where we're seeing this really hopeful, exciting innovation, as we've discussed already. Let's work really hard together to make sure that the frustration that we feel, that you all feel, that we feel can be addressed in a way that will result in success for everybody and 
the appropriate outcomes and a better quality of life for those affected by vision loss globally. And I think that's really important. The opportunity is there and there's many willing to work with you. Professor Kaiser, I have a question for you. From the perspective of a clinician and in your work, what insights could we provide as patients that would help to inform your practice and particularly around this really important conversation around clinical trials? How can we help? That would be very important for us to know. Well, I think as a clinical trialist, the most difficult thing is understanding who the patients are who would be eligible for this study that we're working on. How willing are they to do whatever the treatment or surgery or intervention that we want to deliver? Because oftentimes we underestimate what a patient's willing to do. And a casing point would be this. Being able to have access to patient advocacy groups, maybe even patients themselves, to sit down and, as we've been discussing, really work in a collaborative manner to allow us to design this study such that we meet the regulatory hurdles that the government's going to place on us. But I think more importantly that we meet the goals of the patients who are at the end of the day will be using this treatment and, and what are they willing to undergo to treat their disease. So I think from a collaboration standpoint, it's just knowing this. And many of the partner organizations that you work with already work with clinical trialists like us, but I think we don't look at it at a global stage. So I'm based in the United States. I'm very familiar with the United States regulatory environment as well as the EU, but many other areas, Africa, South Asia, other areas. Uh, we don't really have access to those patients or even understand what those patients are looking for and some of the hurdles that they would have receiving this type of treatment. We always just assume that the doctor's office is just down the street, but in many of these countries, the doctor's office may be days away through buses and other means of transportation. And what would that mean to delivering this type of care? So I think it's vital, this idea that we've been talking talking about throughout today, which is collaboration. And I really think that collaboration needs to increase in the future. Thank you. I absolutely agree. And I think working with patient organizations can really help. And, and you know, listening, as we said, listening and learning and applying that knowledge is the way forward. Well, thank you so much. You've been listening to the Eyes on Retina podcast series by Boeinger Ingelheim. Don't forget to click subscribe or follow to listen to our next episode.